Well, welcome, and uh, let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, in the Old Testament, uh, you continually remind Israel to not stray from your word and to remember the implications of that, to find life by heeding it. In the book of Revelation, you warn the churches and you speak to them about not straying from your word. And so we pray today that through this message, you will help us to hold on to your word, to be a church of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of the churches around Australia and the world are pretty ill. Driving around Australia, you often see many disused church buildings, now craft shops, cafes, or converted into homes. They testify that there was a people of faith there, a gospel witness to that community, a portal for souls to be called into heaven. But something went wrong, like a cancer spreading across churches and denominations through the decades. But the illness of the church is even worse in some other places around the world. Much of Europe, for example, where we support Jotam in, in Germany, in North America, Canada, throughout Asia, where esteem for the Bible is often very low, where its authority is doubted and its claims diluted. In those places, the health of the church falls with it. The embrace of God's living word is like blood that runs through the church's veins. If the Bible is doubted, sidelined, preached without conviction about what it truly is, well, the sword of the spirit is left in its sheath. Spiritual work doesn't happen. Churches starve themselves to death. In short, the Bible passage we're examining today answers the question, why be a Bible-centred church? Why be a Bible-centred church? Well, firstly, because God's word keeps us from straying. God's word keeps us from straying. Let's recall for a moment where we were up to in Mark's gospel. In the previous chapter, in Mark 6.34, when Jesus saw Israelites, who in theory had good access to the Old Testament scriptures, he had compassion on them. Do you remember why he had compassion? He said it was because they, had, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And do you remember what he did to help them when they lost their way as sheep without a shepherd? We read that he began teaching them many things. Now, why were Israelites like sheep without a shepherd? Because they didn't have a clear grasp of what Scripture says. And chapter 7, verse 1, leads us into why that is. We read there in today's reading, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food. Now, more literally, the word here is bread or loaf. And I think it's linking with the previous chapter where Jesus fed the 5,000 with bread, with loaves. So they saw, verse 2, some of his disciples eating bread with hands that were defiled, that is, ceremonially unwashed. Verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition. Notice the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, 
why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their bread with defiled hands? Now, you'd think, after reading Mark chapter 6, as we did last week, the Pharisees' questions about bread and loaves might be a bit more inspiring than this. Wow, Jesus, they might have said, we heard how you and the disciples, you fed thousands with five loaves. Tell us more about that. Instead, it's, excuse me, Jesus, pray tell, when your disciples eat bread, their hands ain't ceremonially clean. They have dirty hands. They care a lot about things that don't matter to Scripture, these Pharisees. And so Jesus calls a spade a spade. He exposes their hypocrisy for their sake and for others. And though we don't aim to offend for offending's sake, sometimes the kindest thing one can do is to offend people, or it involves offending people. The first ouch of this passage comes in verse 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Verse 8. You have let go of the commands of God and you are holding on to human traditions. It's very clear. Now, in the Pharisees' case, the oral law, the Mishnah, had become like a second Bible to them. Yes, the scriptures, the law gave good principles, but this second authority was more elaborate, more detailed, a set of rules that clarified what Jews could and couldn't do Monday to Sunday so that they could obey God in all the details and complexities of life. A huge 25% of the Mishnah related to purity. Jews had washing baths, even in the most arid places on earth. This was important to them, had become important to them. It would be like a book. We had a book, A Thousand Rules for Christian Living. And some of us might like that. That might appeal to us. Tell me what to do. Someone, tell me how to live as a Christian. Other of us might really not like that idea. And so we have to hold loosely, for that reason, to Christian sayings, additions to the Bible, Christian maxims that sometimes help, but they aren't God's word. So in the 20th century, sayings or rules like Christians shouldn't go to the cinema or Christians shouldn't dance. Another one might be let go and let God. Or another one, no Bible, no breakfast. These things are offered with good intention and for good reason, but they aren't as gracious or as accurate as God's word. They try to help us by telling us what to do. When God's word should be sufficient. Now, the Roman Catholic Church Church is a huge and obvious target when it comes to this danger. It's a terribly sad story. The decrees of their historical councils remain binding. Their theology directly contradicts the Bible on very important points. Points like, how can a person be saved? Tradition is not accidentally, but deliberately given equal authority with the Bible. And it leads their thinking, their message, their practices, and their priorities into a terrible muddle. What about Presbyterian churches, some of us might be thinking? We aren't perfect either. 
We do have guiding documents. The Westminster Confession reflects how we think about important truths in the Bible. And the code, as we call it, is a handbook for some organisational good order. But these documents themselves insist that they are not the supreme authority. They bow to Scripture. They are explicitly servants, not masters, of biblical Christianity. And it's important they remain that way. We need to be careful, verse 9, as Jesus points here to the terrible gap that has developed between what is truly from God and what is the Pharisees' own making. Ways they have learned and, and grown to disobey God habitually by overly heeding their traditions. Verse 9, Jesus continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Notice the contrast of God, your own. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Corban means offering. And this Corban tradition led some to not only excuse themselves on devotional grounds from looking after their parents, but sometimes these laws even prevented people from caring for mum and dad. I remember spending a few hours one day trying to convince a woman that it was not God's will that she leave her husband and leave her young son to be a missionary on the opposite side of the world. She was telling me that this is what she thought God was saying to her to do. Her pastor didn't agree. Her husband, who wasn't a Christian, didn't like it. And I assume her son wasn't overly keen about the idea either. I took her to the Bible's view of marriage and I urged her not to desert them for God's sake. Monasteries, convents, celibacy rules for priests, they were intended to increase devotion for God, but they so easily led to a distorted version of the Christianity they claimed and, and wanted to promote. The cults do this all the time. Don't just cease listening to your family members, Disown them so that you can be devoted to God. Jesus warns us of this tendency, this human tendency. We like to create rules and develop traditions. Verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do presently and continuously. This is what you are doing. Many things like that. Jesus isn't just nitpicking one problematic rule here. He's pulling the entire Pharisaic rug from under them. Traditions have built up to create serious interference on their compass. And it's led them over the centuries and among millions of people, like a ship a few degrees off course, so far from where they should be. If we want to be clearly shepherded by God, whether Pharisees or Roman Catholics or Presbyterian Christians or whatever we call ourselves. We keep our Bibles open and we seek to listen well to what God says individually and together. May our Bibles be loved, DPC, and absorbed. May we be sheep daily led by their, 
our, our good shepherd's voice. It's our compass. It's our guide. It's a form of bread to feed us. Our good shepherd speaks through it, as he is doing right now through Mark chapter 7. I wonder, DPC, not if but how we are in danger or how we are already doing the same thing. How in our church life and the traditions we unavoidably develop, how are those things having influence over the priorities of God? Here are some follow-up questions that might take that line of thought further. Do our gatherings allow us to hear from God, respond to God, revere God, and, and do we love each other, encourage and build each other up? These are the central things of Scripture. Are our gatherings online or in person a place where we can invite seekers? Are our facilities helpful? Or are they making what is important harder? Is our, cult, uh, our church culture healthy? Or are we becoming comfortable with a tradition that has developed more through accident and time or preference than through deliberate obedience? Are our lives shaped more by Jesus and his good news than by our experiences of growing up or what is socially normal? Our 9 a.m. service, our 10.30 service, our 5 p.m. service, our home groups, the rituals and norms are, are slightly different in each. And we want to keep asking in our gatherings, is Christ's lordship and gospel responsiveness being hindered by the way we do things? How can we better let God's word do its work among us? How can we see people saved and more people saved and welcomed and then integrated into community life? Are there hindrances to those things? Now, many churches get all tied up in knots and divided over starting times, church starting times, length of gatherings, choice of musical instruments, preferred clothing, car park management, and there's a potential too for division in the coming months as we as churches try to navigate gathering again in person. On all of these issues, if God isn't saying much about them, they're probably not very important in themselves. But what is important and what will be important is loving each other and gentleness and humility and patience and seeking to be and to make disciples. This is what the word will keep directing us to, whatever the issue is that we face in the coming months and years. May God keep us united as we focus on behaving as he calls us and keeping the main things the main thing. For many of us, I take it, online church is becoming comfortable. I wonder if you can feel it. A new, pretty comfortable tradition is gradually developing. And so we'll need to be deliberate to ensure any new traditions, any developing preferences, feelings, even felt needs don't drown out the bigger concerns of King Jesus' direction for us as his church. Why be a Bible-centered church? Because firstly, God's word keeps us from straying in all kinds of directions. And second, in verses 14 to 23, we see because God's word gets to the heart of the human problem. Our hearts. God's word gets to the heart of the human problem. Our hearts. God's word has always been addressing 
the human heart. The law wooed Israel to love God with their heart, soul, mind and strength. To not only avoid neglecting one's neighbour, but to love one's neighbour as oneself. These greatest commandments keep ripping through the idolatrous and selfish preferences we tend to have for ourselves. They remain very challenging. The Pharisees had begun to shift emphasis from that heart love of God and neighbour and turned it into legal and religious observances. That's what Jesus says there from that Isaiah quote. And from verse 14, Jesus addresses the crowd with a form of parable. Verse 14, again Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And now, rather than speaking to the Pharisees, to his disciples, listening even more intently, Jesus sheds even more light. It's like inner rings. The the closer you get, the more you learn from Jesus. Verse 17, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Often from a Bible's perspective, what should be obvious to us isn't as obvious to us. And so Jesus there says a fairly strong word to them. Jesus, like the law before him, targets the heart beneath behaviours. Now, like most people I know, I love bacon. One of my friends was a Jew who became a Christian as a teenager. She was telling me how hard it was for her to put pork into her mouth for the first time. She'd grown up thinking pork was repulsive. Now, there was never anything inherently unclean about the food God gave the nations to eat. For a time, Israel's food laws were were part of making them a distinct nation so that a distinct Israel existed to give birth to the world's Messiah. Israel had to exist as a separate nation and be distinct. For a time, their food laws gave daily ways for them to show God they loved him in the way that he prescribed. Jesus explains further in verse 20 that what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. The cosmic battle, that evil, uh, the clash between good and evil that we see with the serpent way back in the Garden of Eden is a battle that continues in the human heart in your heart, in my heart, in the hearts of our neighbours. Want to know what makes a person genuinely, truly, really unclean? Want to know how to truly change the world? Forget the unwashed hands, Jesus is saying. Start with the human heart. Bring the gospel into people's lives and watch what happens. Jesus then gives a really confronting list. Again, some of us and some of the world might consider this offensive. It's pretty strong. Twelve vices are listed. The first six are in the plural and relate more to actions. The last six 
are more about attitudes and in the singular. So firstly, he says sexual immoralities. This is sex outside the biblical boundaries, including prostitution and unmarried sex. Human hearts want and they get wrongful sex. Next, he says thefts, murders, adulteries, greediness. Now there's a more destructive pandemic that a vaccine can't touch. Greediness, it's everywhere. Malice, that is wickedness. And then he mentions deceit or cunning, trickery, like the phone scammers or door-to-door charity frauds who trick people and in so doing they break down, they tear apart the fabric of, the uh, social fabric of trust and goodwill. Governments try to stop these scams, but who can reach the hearts of the scammers? Well, we the church can, if we are people who don't lose God's word, who hold on to it. I was in an email conversation with someone I realized was trying to scam me from China. As I was trying to buy something online, they asked for a a money transfer, and it just seemed a bit dodgy. I I, Somehow, I can't remember how, but I found out uh, they were coming from China, that's where the something was coming from. And so I found a Chinese translation of some Bible verses and sent it to the person saying, why are you doing this? God knows what you're doing and he doesn't like what you are doing. Turn to him. This person needed a new heart. Lewdness. That's the next trait, Jesus says. That's to lack moral fiber to behave like animals when it comes to morals and sexual practice. Envy, slander, slander being false or abusive speech, arrogance, pride, that is, and and folly. All these evils, Jesus concludes, verse 23, come from inside, and they are what defiles a person. You can understand why, having looked at the list. We have a friend who serves God in Arnhem Land, And out of love for Indigenous people, she works in a women's violence refuge. In her newsletter, she shares a disturbing image, but one that illustrates well what Jesus is saying about the human heart. And so I share it with you. This was in a newsletter just recently. My friend writes, I've been running some art therapy groups at the women's shelter. It's an opportunity for women to share their story or feelings without language barrier, fear or restraint. The images of violence and loneliness are very confronting. But somehow, therapeutic for both the artists and the group participants. I'm keen to facilitate the kind of healing that can come through women sharing their struggles as well as their ways of coping in order to support one another. On most occasions, I love this bit, on most occasions, the women are also keen to be prayed for and see God as having a key role in their comfort and strength to go on. My friend realises the problems are so severe, so entrenched, it's obvious. Only God can rescue this town. Otherwise, it's utterly hopeless. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so, friends, brothers and sisters, DPC, There is too much at stake in our broken world for us to worry about things that simply don't matter. God and the Lord Jesus are on about something much greater 
God's word will keep us from straying and it will keep us focused on the heart and the things that matter most. Well, let's ask God's help to stay close to his word and to learn from it. Let's pray. We rejoice, Lord, that your word not only points to what is good, it also brings it about. Your word informs us, but it powerfully transforms us as the sword of your spirit to do eternally significant work in us and in your world. We pray that you would make a divine makeover in each of us. May you increasingly equip and grow us to be effective lights in Dremoin and in your world. Send missionaries from us with your word. Draw people into our homes and into our church gatherings. And may we be so clear-minded about what matters, that our witness is piercing, our love and unity striking, and our fruitfulness abundant. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.